Well, I want to welcome you. Um, we are in the midst of all the changes with regard to the renovation, restoration, the new building, as you saw as you came in, and hopefully you had a chance just to see how that's being um, coming together, just getting the hole dug. Uh, the last two weeks, I've tried this, this uh, mic that I, I like because I can use my hands and, you know, and do flips and stuff. Anyway, um, but I've had to use the handheld, and that's because of scaffolding and all kinds of stuff. And, and I just want to thank you because I know with the sound and all kinds of different things here, we've had our you know, ups and downs because we're in the middle of all this change. So bear with us um, as we try and get things regulated around that with regard to sound. And, and even in the building, we had this last week on the one end, it rained and it rained all the way in and Shelly, dear Shelly's office was like um, Noah's Ark. So... Um, that's going on. I know there's parking difficulty. I know that you're sitting in some of those chairs in the back, which may be even more comfortable than the pews. That's why I think they fill up first. <laughs> but one thing I do want to say to you is in a couple of weeks, July 30th and August 6th, those two Sundays, we will not be in here because we're hoping and praying that scheduled will be the change of carpeting and the new chairs and all that will take place in those two weeks but we'll be meeting right across the hall but we need to go to two services to do that so we've chose to go to an 8 30 and to a 10 a.m service so we need some of you to kind of say i'll go to the 8 30 service now i'm just going to take a quick poll how many of you will go to that 8 30 service please raise your hand wow Okay, great. Um, I was going to have, I thought maybe there'd just be a few and I'd say we need more and I was going to start calling out families. Um, <clears throat> but I won't do that. Thank you for doing that. I, I, I've been saying, some of you have been saying over these last 30 days, these, these um, prayers of the Holy Spirit um, that I'm really grateful for someone in our congregation who gave me those and then I passed those on to you and, and one of them specifically has just hit me every time I'm praying through them and it is um, this day Holy Spirit I want to be all that I can be with you directing me and I've been trying to say you know what if I set my alarm every 10 minutes to kind of just be reminded of that because I just don't do that real well because Kevin likes to kind of run the show, you know? I know there's no one like that around here in our church family because you're all so humble. But um, I really believe we're in a time where God is doing something in our body and in our midst as we sit imagine a church that does whatever it takes to share through this Metro West area and to serve in the name of Christ. And, and, and as you know, we had this incident that happened in our front lawn like that very Sunday after that series, which gave us an opportunity to do what we've been saying and not just imagine, but to actually get out and do that and serve. And then this week when I heard about Nolan's wife, Emily, as they're flying in a plane, I don't know what that would be like to know that you're an hour or so in the air and, and you know that you're having a stroke and what do you do? And how God is at work in, 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 in their life. And, and, and in this series, Where is God? Where we are just asking that question, Where are you, God? At times. 
And it's really easy when things are going well, <clears throat> we, we kind of go, thanks God, and you almost kind of leave God behind in the joy and the celebration of it all and can sometimes begin to get proud. I do that really easily. <laughs> and then you can move to those places where you kind of feel like, God, where'd you go? And, and you're experiencing those lows, and he says, I'm right here with you, and I'm going to take you through this. I actually had a whole different introduction, but this is what I think is going on in the mind and the heart of a guy named Mordecai who is trying to figure out, because he's not reading the story and and able to kind of sit back and go, check, that was providence, that was the hand of God, that was the hand of God. He's in the middle of the story like you may be in the middle of the story and you're just looking around and you're asking you know, where are you? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and recognize that there are times in our own lives, there are times in the life of people that we love dearly and deeply. There are times when we even kind of stand outside a little bit more distant from some people and we're just saying God what's going on here like no one said why why and, and, and sometimes God to move to a posture that just in faith says I don't understand why but I do know this truth that you are good and that you love me and I don't need to be afraid And even though it feels like I have been let down, you never, ever let your children down, but you stand with them to the end with the promise of the goodness that they will experience and know. So God, I pray for that now as we look at your word. And I I say this day, Holy Spirit, I want to be all that I can be with you directing our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, that's where we're at in the story of, of, of Esther right now. I'm certain Esther was thinking, why is it that when you're doing good and you're trying to live a pure life and you're trying to follow after God with all your heart and you're seeking to move more fully into his purposes and his ways, why is it that when you're doing that, sometimes it, it just appears that God doesn't see, doesn't notice, and in fact, just the opposite happens. Just the opposite happens. And you begin to ask yourself the questions like in Psalm 73, Asaph asked himself, he looked around, he kept looking at all the, the good things and, 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 he, and he saw the things that was happening in the lives of people who weren't following God and it seemed so good and things like their life was just going just fine. And I think he was asking, does it pay to be good? Why does it look like nice guys finish last? Where does God, and what is he doing when you do good and it doesn't seem that you get good in return? So we pick up the story of Esther, and so I'm going to do a quick review again. Chapter 1 begins with this line. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. So I'm not going to go through all the history. Please listen to some of those other messages 
But Xerxes, we're told, held a 180-day pep rally to get all his allied territories, that would be from India all the way to northern Africa, to join with him their finances, their militaries, to go to war against a country called Greece that was becoming an upstart nation, eventually would be the nation that would rule in years to come. And he had this pep rally, and it was a huge success. They were all on board. They wanted to do it. So he gives a seven-day thank-you banquet to the city of Susa, where he was at, that put it on. And in the midst of it, he drinks too much, something we're told in history he did a lot of. And, and, and at that time, drinking too much, he asked his wife, Vashti, who was the queen, to do something inappropriate. She refused. He gets really angry, something we're told again in history by Herodotus and other historians. He did a lot of. He was used to getting his way, so he divorces and disposes her from her queenly duties. He goes to war. There's a four-year period. It's not in the book of Esther. It's, it's recorded in history. He gets badly beaten. He leaves with one to two million men, comes back with only 5,000 men with his tail in between his legs. He's feeling the desire to be consoled because he was a very central and, and very ungodly man. He looked to see if there, you know, to his harem and to everything else. He's been told in history that he had some affairs. He comes back, and we're told in chapter 2, Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti. He goes, man, I remember Vashti wasn't such a bad person. He begins to miss his wife, and so those wise, but we had talked about this really foolish advisors come around him because they're the ones who encouraged him to depose Vashti because they were probably people who didn't really like Vashti. Now they're afraid if Vashti gets into power, they're going to be in trouble. So they give him some great advice. This is off-the-charts kind of um, advice. He says, they say to him, why don't you take this whole realm and do a Miss Universe pageant? Well, I mean, to a guy like, you know, a guy like Xerxes, that sounds like a pretty good idea. And here's the kicker. You get to be the judge. And whoever you judge to be the top one, she gets to be the new queen. And he goes, that's a great idea. And surprise of all surprises, little orphaned girl named Esther wins the contest. She's everybody's favorite. And the story ends in chapter 2 with her guardian Mordecai, who is at this point now an official of rank. We're told he sits in the city gates. It's where the judges and the, the, the higher people in the court of the king would sit. And he overhears the plot of two people who were actually guards to the door of the king plotting to kill the king. He tells Esther, who now has been a queen in, in, in this five-year period between now and this, in chapter 3, somewhere in this time, he tells the king, the king gets news, they find those two, they hang those two, and we're, it, it ends with this. Mordecai's good deed that he had heard in the gates and had shared with the Esther and gotten to the king is recorded in the palace archives. But Mordecai himself goes unrewarded. Recorded, but unrewarded. And it ends there. And you're going, well, that's not good, but listen to what happens in chapter 3, verse 1. It gets worse. This is today's story. And it begins with another timestamp. After these events... 
King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamethodoth. Now you can never say that right. Anyway, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the nobles. So finally in chapter 3, what happens is here is Mordecai unrewarded, but we move into a point where there's a guy named Haman who is mentioned, and Haman is the arch enemy of this guy, Mordecai. Now, just a little audience participation. I want to kind of, you know, because you think of, uh, of what I would call people who are enemies of good and bad, arch enemies that you, you hear of from time to time. Every story has something like that, right? So Batman has his Joker. Good, good. Superman has his Lex Luthor or whatever, yeah. Wonder Woman has... Yeah, no one knows. And pretty much anyone who's... <laughs> seriously, pretty much anyone who's... I looked this up. Anyone who's named Doctor... So you doctors, Dr. Cyber, Dr. Poison, Dr. Psycho, Luke Skywalker, oh come on, I see Sherlock Holmes, Moriarty, James Bond, and Goldfinger Jaws, and his most notorious, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, the leader of Spectre. Now what I want you to understand is that's the kind of kind of relationship between a Mordecai and a Haman. This is, when, when the readers are reading this, here's, here's what you have to understand. When this was read publicly, because people didn't have all kinds of books, it had to be read publicly. And so when it was read publicly, people would hear the story. When they would hear the name, they're coming along, they're reading this, they come to chapter 3, verse 1. Every time the name Haman is mentioned, this is recorded in history, they would do this, the Jews, when they hear the name, would hiss or boo. I mean, that's how, so as you're reading the story, it'd be like this. Now, join me, hiss or boo on this. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. There you go. See, if we read this story, it would come alive. The story continues in verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai, oh, did I hear some good? Would not, yeah, you can do this, that's all right. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Yeah, you don't have to do the yays, but you know, (laughs) that's all right. Now you have to understand this is nothing like Mordecai in the first commandment and the whole idea of, you know, wor- you know, worshiping an idol and bowing down to an idol because it was pretty common that you would bow to the king. He did those, they did those kind of things. Here is something that is different than that. It, this is going back centuries to a feud that began with a struggle between a, a, two guys, Jacob and Esau. And, and then there was Moses and a guy named Amalek. And then there was a King Saul and a guy named King Agag. Who is Haman? His father is, he is a part of the Agagites. So you see this, this rivalry, this, this nemesis Haman coming throughout the centuries. It's a family feud. In fact, one of the Targums, which are the Old Testament commentaries that were written before the time of Christ, says this, no self-respecting Benjamite would bow before a descendant of the ancient Amalekite enemy of the Jews. The story continues, verse 3. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. Now remember, Mordecai had told Esther not to tell anybody she's a Jew, so why is he going about telling someone he's a Jew? 
Because Mordecai wouldn't budge, he wouldn't bow. They're thinking Mordecai is ticked off because what happens is Haman gets rewarded for Mordecai's deed. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the future, but here's what's going on. Here's Haman getting rewarded for what Mordecai had shared to the king. And because of this promotion, they're thinking he's just ticked off, get over it, you know what, let's, let's move on. But Mordecai tells him, no, that's not why. There's far more to this. And then he tells them the entire story. And they understand this isn't a jealousy thing. And so they try and attempt some sense into Mordecai. He won't listen to it. So verse 5 says, when Haman, come on, a little quicker than that, saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, He scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. See, at first, Haman only thought of getting rid of Mordecai. I mean, he's thinking that Mordecai is probably a little bit ticked off because Mordecai is this nice guy who shared this story But he lost out because he didn't take advantage of the moment. When luck came, when fate opened its door, it wasn't Mordecai who walked through it, Haman did. And so now with this additional news that he gets from these advisors, why they tell him that Mordecai won't bow before him, he is now um, in this place where everything changes for him. He goes, oh, it isn't that Mordecai is some kind of professional softy who doesn't understand the game of political cutthroat. Mordecai is his mortal enemy. And not only can he get rid of Mordecai, he can get rid of all his people. And Haman is thinking, wow, this is incredible. I'll be a hero of my own people all the way back to Jacob and Esau. I will be the hero of my people because not only will I get rid of Mordecai, I can get rid of all the people and this God that they serve, and I can do, you know, and kind of genocide the whole group. So in verse 7, it says, In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the purr, that is the lot, they were like dice, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day in a month. You missed it. But anyway, and the lot fell on the 12th month in the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people and they do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king... Let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give them, I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Now get a picture of this. This is 375 tons of silver. The historian of the day, Herodotus, writes that the entire kingdom of Persia, from India all the way to North Africa, the entire yearly revenue was 15,000 talents. He says, I'm going to give you 10,000. It's a huge amount. Haman knew how he would get it, because if he'd get rid of the people, he would get their land, he'd get their homes, he'd get their wealth, he would get all that, so he'd get a whole lot more, because they were growing as a wealthy people. That was part of the persecution, no different than in Egypt, when they were in Egypt, and they kept thinking, these people are getting so big, someday they'll overrun and they'll take over us. That's happening. That's happening. 
as they're growing more wealthy. And Haman knew that if he offered this amount of money, it would make the king amenable to his plan. So he appealed to the king's greed. Because the kingdom at that time, after that loss of battle and all the people they had sent and all the males that had been removed from their area and their, their, their kingdom was actually, in a sense, financially sucking air. And, and he knew that this would be a big boost to anything he wanted to do. So we're told on the 12th year of Xerxes' reign, it was about five years after Esther had become queen, Haman and his buddies cast pur. Now, pur is again a lot like dice. Um, Archaeology have actually discovered near the city of Susha um, these actual dice, the kind of things that they would use. And the Persians, the reason they used that were very superstitious people. They believed in luck and they believed in the fate. And they wanted luck to be on their side. That would be the reason to even cast the purr to find out what is fate saying we should do with regard to this important decision of this mass genocide of the people, the Jewish people. You see, there is a sense when you look at that and you look at this, a kingdom that's run by fate and luck and chance and coincidence and all this other stuff. You can understand in some ways why they, as a people, a group, would, when they would make a law, they would make a law that could never be changed. They're trying to cause some kind of stability in this world that is just so superstitious and you don't really have a handle on. And it's written in the backdrop of all this. And you have this king, this King Xerxes, who is this selfish, narcissistic person who could care less about anybody in his kingdom but about himself. And you see the incredible contrast of the book of Esther when you start to look at this and you go, that is, is not who God is. He's not some arbitrary God who does whatever he pleases because he's some narcissistic being, but he is a God. Although he, Xerxes is seen everywhere in a sense in the kingdom in the book, God seems to be nowhere and his name's never mentioned once because he stands behind and he is this God who is not a God of fate and chance and luck, but he's a God whose hand, even in your life right now, is superintending and moving and ways that even though you're in the middle of the story you can't see it someday you'll stand back and you'll look and you go God thank you if you open your heart and you say God I want my life Holy Spirit of God would you this day help me be all that I can be by directing my life as I trust you And the dice fell in the 12th month. Probably they would throw it on a board that had months listed. And the date was set. In about 11 months, the Jews' fate had been determined by a king's command. And Haman exploits his access and intimacy with the king and presents his plan. Gives two kind of pretty silly reasons. One, that they're spread with different customs, and secondly, that they won't obey the king's laws, which was not taking place, but it didn't matter. He had already baited the whole thing with 10,000 talents of silver because he just could not stand not only the people of God, but the God behind the people of God. So verse 10, the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamanathada, the Agagite, Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, which I'm not crazy about that translation. It's more the idea if he's just saying, well, do what you want with the money kind of idea. It's kind of a throwaway phrase where he's, because if you listen to what he says, and the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. 
because we see later the king did take the plunder, so it's kind of like a polite thing. Well, that's nice, but give it. And then, verse 12, on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned, and they wrote out in script each of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps and the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. And these were written in the name of King Xerxes himself, sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy. Remember when I said about the couriers, it's a, it's a really good mark history. People said, well, is this really just a story? The couriers were something, in fact, if you go to the um, New York Postal Building that was built years ago in the early 1900s, the, the words around it that they had put around it, I don't know if they're still there, was from the words of Herodotus that said those who were from Persia, they had a mail system like the Pony Express where they would have a horse that could, they knew how far it could run and they, would, they were able to, they, they, they had a messaging system, a communication system that the world had never seen before. That was one of their great contributions to civilization. And so they, as it says here, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews. So if you don't get it, it's not to just kill. We're talking about not one to remain. All the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and then to plunder their goods. The signet ring was basically like a blank check. It was the king's signature. Go ahead. You have my blank check to do whatever you want. And one other thing to note, that you see, if Jews were reading this, they would catch this in a whole different way than we do because we just don't have the history. We're not marked in the same way from a cultural standpoint. But this edict is sent out on the 13th day of the first month, and that is the eve of Passover. And it would be like getting this news if it were us on Christmas Eve. We're celebrating the coming of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who's brought his new kingdom and set us free from sin. And and you're just about, you're getting ready to celebrate. You're going off and then you hear this edict because Passover was their Christmas Eve. It was about God coming and taking a group of people like the people who were being written to in in Esther and and, and who are in um, Persia and Babylon and in, in captivity there. It's these people now are in captivity in Egypt and God does this Passover. He Passovers them so that they can be set free from them. And here is the thing. They hear the news on the day of their greatest celebration. Isn't that how it hits us sometimes? Life is going well. Things seem to be good. And all of a sudden you just get your feet knocked out right from underneath you. And we're told to copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. And the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the city of Susa. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. You get this picture of the king and Haman sitting down together. They're, they're now drinking buddies. Haman Characteristic of his ancestors hates the Jews and their god Xerxes, a self-centered egotist, showing no concern for anyone but himself, signs a decree without even investigating whether those things are true. What kind of leader does that? Except someone who doesn't care. 
But again, the message of Esther is that God is not that kind of God. He cares deeply for you. And so they raise their glasses, make a toast to this newly issued edict, while the people throughout the city of Susa, they hear the news and the word is they are confused. It's used a couple times in the Old Testament. They're bewildered. They're wondering, the people, not just the Jews, but here are the people who love these other Jewish neighbors, and they're going, who's running this show? Who? Who is turning the hands of time so that this would come about? I had a few, three things to share with you, and I'm only going to share one. The other two are really good, but you know what? Because I always try and get you to eat too much on Sunday mornings. I just want to make this point, and that is that God will not forget the good you do. When chapter 2 ends and it says it's recorded but unrewarded and moves to chapter 3 verse 1 where we now see instead of the reward, here's some guy who didn't deserve it at all, getting it. It's really easy when we walk through this life to kind of go, God, does it really pay to be good? Does it really pay to be pure? I mean, it doesn't seem like you get rewarded. And what's worse, the person that shouldn't get promoted gets promoted. Most likely, Haman saw the chance and luck was on his side and fate opened the door and he, being the political, ambitious person he was, jumped to the door and said, guess what, I know that you heard that, but here's what I did and that's why your life is saved. And I'm sure the king goes, wow, whatever you want, man. Have you ever experienced anything like that? You work on a project with a team. And you do the bulk of the work. Anybody ever done this? You probably do the, give the greatest contribution to it. And, and, and all of a sudden, as you have done all that, and the team is kind of standing, and you're thinking you're going to get somehow rewarded, one person kind of steps to the front and takes the limelight and gets the glory. And it's the one guy that you really don't like. You ever done that in your own life? Maybe it's just personally. You've done good. You, you've worked hard. You've worked your tail off. you put in the time. You, you've done all that you should do. And you've been following God with all your heart. And you're seeking to follow him. And you do this good. And it just seems like it doesn't ever get rewarded. It doesn't seem like God even sees it. How do you handle situations like that? I mean, what do you do? Do you feel like just giving up and saying, what well, doesn't matter? So I cut some corners. Everyone else does. Or maybe you start thinking, you know what? If, if God's not going to step in to take care of me, if he's like a King Xerxes, then I better take care of myself. And the Spirit is checking you, saying, don't push into this. Don't push for the promotion. You, you know, God's saying, let me take care of this. And then you kind of try to listen to the Spirit of God, and you go ahead and you do it, and you go, see what happened? Now, let me just tell you this. Some of you, uh, you need to hear the fact that the Spirit of God might be prompting you to, to be more self-assertive, to step into something. You may not have a problem with ambitiousness, so to speak. And I'm going to encourage you, you may need to listen to the prompting that pushes you to go through the door. But some, God might be saying to you, hey, no, hold back, don't do it your way. But you go, you know what, God, I've let you do it before and you haven't come through. 
Do you get bitter? Do you hold resentment? Are you ticked off? You know, one of the great things that, um, when, I, when, I, when I think about this whole idea of Mordecai who continues to do good and Esther who continues to do good is one of the ways that God creates strength within you in your character. One of the ways that he makes you the kind of person he wants you to be is you do good and you do good without reward at times. Children, you reward all the time, right? Because what you're trying to do is kind of move them forward. A lot of times early in your faith walk with God, it's amazing. God opens doors here, he does this here, and he, makes it, you know, he heals here, and, and you're going, wow, this is great, and God's just treating you like a child, going, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you know that reward is given for goodness. And then all of a certain point, it seems like all that goes away, and you're walking blind, and it seems like, what, what's going on here? And one of the things God is doing is he's creating in you a character that does good for goodness sake. Because he is raising up not just children, but adults who someday, there is a kingdom that's beyond this. There's a kingdom beyond this world. There is a kingdom he wants you to rule in this world. And in this world, he wants to raise up your character because he wants to trust the character of Christ in you to do good no matter what. So I just want to tell you, if you are in that place and you're wondering, do I can, yes, continue to do good, continue to press into God, continue to hope in him, and do some things along the way. Take some verses. Here's a verse that I would encourage you just to, to memorize and put into your heart. Hebrews 6.10. God is not unjust. God is not unjust. God is not unfair. God is not like Xerxes. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them continue to press in and do good and let them form your character. For it's that very character will be rewarded someday in the kingdom of come because he wants people he can trust with the keys to the kingdom. Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time, I love that, in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. Just memorize a couple of these verses. Hebrews 6, 10, Galatians 6, 9. Another thing to do is to come on a regular basis. That's why we talk about worship, you know. It's not you're getting brownie points for God. God is not going, wow, oh, look at who's here this morning. I'm glad you're here. It makes me feel better. No, he does it because he knows worship and being with God's people actually builds into your character and makes you the kind of person that God desires for you to be. Worship, singing praise songs, speaking forth, saying it out loud, changes the atmosphere in your own heart. And, and, and then spend time with, with other people. Make sure you're connected with some people in a small group. I tell you, the, the thing that Satan wants to do most is get you to be an island out there by yourself so no one knows you. But you need, you need desperately to have those kind of relationships where, where you will seek to be accountable and you can only can be the one accountable. Don't talk about being accountability groups expecting them to do it. You will enter into it and take initiative and say, God... There are times when I need to walk with other brothers and sisters because they need to hold me up. They need to, to put their hand on my back and say, God's with you. There are all kinds of ways that God wants us to, to walk with him and be established in him. Now, I, I didn't even get into a part that's just such a cool part 
because there's this whole history of the Jews and, and going back to Jacob. So I just touched on that. There's, that's kind of one of the bulk parts of the story. The people are wondering, will you preserve us, God? Will you preserve us? And, and, and recognize this. If you say I'm going to walk with God and you're going to seek to follow his purposes, know this. This is what this chapter says as well. You will experience a spiritual struggle. You make a commitment to say, Holy Spirit, um, today, with all that I am, I want to be all that I can be to let you direct my life. You can bet that you will find instance after instance where Satan's going to come against that. Because God's people and purposes will be opposed. That's what this whole story is about. That, that when you start to walk into it, there is a Satan, a real Satan. There is a world, and the system of this world has sin in it. It's systemic, the power, racism, all those different things. There, there's this world that has that all these things that try and create us to be ambitious and lustful and, and all this in the world. So it's our flesh, our sin. Here's the enemies. It is our flesh. It is the world around us and the systems of the world and there is a personal evil Satan who when he fell, he fell with a third of the angels of heaven who are demonic spirits and you can bet they do not want you to follow God. They do not like you and they do not like the God you serve. And yet God has this incredible way of preserving his people. I'm not sure where you fall on, I'm going to use a couple words here, on a millennial or or if you're premillennial, or if you don't even know what that means, that's fine with me. There's a group of thought that says that God will still use Israel someday in his final purposes, and there's a reason why the Jews have never been exterminated. There's never been this mass genocide, even though there's been many occasions where it's been tried, as late as World War II in Nazi Germany. One of the greatest testimonies to God's ability to preserve and protect is evidence in the life of Jews. No people has faced greater persecution over the centuries than they have. And so it seemed that fate or maybe luck or possibly mere chance has positioned the Jews into some influential places at various times in history, or it could be that God's hand did it. In the early 1900s, the British government asked a man named Chaim Wiseman. They asked him, what kind of reward do you wish for your service? This guy happened to be in a place by chance, of influence. And his response was this, only one kind of reward, a national home in Palestine for my people, the Jews. The year was 1917. You'll be asking, in a sense, why the most powerful empire on earth at that time felt so indebted to one Jew. Well, here's the story. Britain stood on the brink of defeat in World War I. There were no American divisions yet prepared to fight. We just weren't in a position to fight at this point. And the British Minister of Ammunitions, Lloyd George, happened to mention to a friend the scarcity of certain chemical acetone. And the British Navy couldn't carry on without that acetone. And the friend happened to know a brilliant scientist who he thought might be able to solve the problem. And so he engaged this guy for the task, and the man experimented, his name, Chaim Wiseman, until he found, over a short period of time, a way to produce this acetone. And the brilliant scientist happened to be a Jew. 
And his work put him in touch with many influential British statements. And whenever Wiseman had the opportunity, he would present his cause. So over a period of years, they kept hearing again and again. And then finally, at a certain point after the war, they said, what can we reward you with? And he said, I'd love a place for my people to be and have a nation in Palestine. And in 1948, I think it was, Israel became a nation. I'm going to ask you to stand. And I want you to know and affirm again that your God is good and faithful. And I'm going to ask you to be faithful as well. As Galatians 6.9 says, let us not lose heart in doing good, but in due time we will reap a reward if we do not grow weary.